You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic this week is pelicans. It's pelicans in all kinds of different ways and ways that you may have not even thought about. Uh, it's based on a book called Brown Pelican by uh, Ryan Fertel. Uh, it's published by LSU Press. To tell you a little bit about Ryan, he's a writer and a teacher, uh, lives in New Orleans. He's the author of three books. One is called, get this, Drive-By Truckers, Southern Rock Opera, the One True Barbecue, Fire, Smoke, and the Pitmaster Who Cooked the Whole Hog, and Imagine the Creole City, The Rise of Literary Culture in 19th Century New Orleans. All of those I'd like to talk to you about in a separate show one day. I, I think the fascinating topic. I know you have had a big interest in, in food, perhaps because, or maybe independently of that, your grandmother, Ruth Fortell, is the famous Ruth and Ruth Chris Steakhouse that uh, she bought Chris's Steakhouse and became Ruth Chris. Uh, I think that was the first time that we had an unusual juncture of names. You had an existing steakhouse. Yeah, I guess Pascal Manali's Pascal, uh, yeah. uh, did the same thing, but she certainly established Ruth Chris into a, a national powerhouse. Yeah. And uh, I was very impressed with it. Um, a little disappointed after Katrina when that Florida company closed the Broad Street store. I, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I was disappointed and was very vocal about the company's, uh, some of the company's actions during, uh, during the pandemic more recently. Yeah. Uh, but, but I will say, you know, I was, I was very close to my grandmother, Ruth. And, you know, besides or certainly beyond um, the love of food and, and restaurant culture, uh, that she instilled in me um, was a love of of books and literature and reading. Um, my parents weren't big book lovers and readers, but my grandmother was. And I don't think a lot of people who maybe even knew her from the steakhouse knew that. But when she was not at the steakhouse, you know, work in front of the house, she was um, she had her nose in a book and she was always doing crosswords. And those are two things that like, I, you know, when I, when I, when I remember walking into her house, um, it, it was just shelves of books. And, and unlike me, I've maybe read like 10% of all the books I buy. She was a hundred percent reader and she had thousands of, of volumes. Uh, and uh, she passed that on to me. And what she did with developing the restaurant, I mean, she did that, on her own, like your father was in his own world. I mean, he was uh, my a grandfather. Yeah. Town, but not, yeah, yeah. Uh, but not someone who would be sitting around looking at balance sheets, uh, whether and all of that in terms of getting it developed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if you got this far, can you tell the thing about when your dad ran for, I mean, um, your grandfather, um, yeah. when he ran for mayor, his famous problem, his famous promise. Mm hmm. 
the uh you want me to tell it i'll tell yeah. you yeah so he he, he might my, my grandfather rodney promised uh to uh to bestow to buy uh a pair of gorillas to the audubon zoo which he felt was a you know sorely lacking problem that audubon had um you know no gorillas no zoo according to him uh he loved uh the, you know the greater apes and uh he you know, he ran for mayor four times and after he, you know, he lost, you know, tremendously, of course, the first time, but he, he, uh, he maybe got a hundred votes or something. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, but he, you know, kept his promise and he went, mm-hmm. he went to Thailand and he bought two gorillas and brought them back. And if you go to the Audubon Zoo, uh, today, there's still a, you know, a plaque, the, the gorillas are long gone, but there's still a plaque that says, uh, you know, the Audubon Zoo, thanks Rodney for his initial gift of two gorillas. Wow. So in your heritage, you have the man who brought gorillas <laughs> to uh, Oliver Park and, and the Ruth and Ruth Chris. So I'd be yeah. proud of that. And there is a Ruth Chris on Veterans Boulevard, which I think mm-hmm. follows in the, the spirit of the, the one. And is there still one in the steakhouse and uh, uh, in the casino? Or, yeah, or, or originally there was. Okay. Well, anyway. All right. Your book, Brown Pelican, I, I found it to be very interesting. There's a lot of different angles too. I want to talk about it. But let's establish a couple of things first, because one thing I think that confuses people is brown pelicans versus white pelicans. Yeah. And what's part of the confusion is that the Louisiana state bird is the brown pelican, but if you look at the, the flag, it's a white pelican. Awfully white. So other, other than color, what is the difference between the white pelican and the brown pelican? Yeah, so brown pelicans are, are smaller. They're about half the size of the white pelican. The brown pelican... Uh, is a diving bird. So that's kind of the most famous, uh, you know, uh, attribute that we associate with with the species, with brown pelicans, as they dive from anywhere between 30 to 60 feet for, wow. for, fish, for their prey. Uh, white pelicans don't dive. They sit on top of the water and they circle their prey and kind of dip their 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 beaks as kind of say nets. Mm. Um, brown pelicans are here um, year round. They uh, you know, are, are born on islands off the coast of Louisiana and, and throughout Gulf Coast islands, um, also Atlantic Coast islands and lower Pacific Coast islands. Um, uh, the American white pelican is the official name. It's a migratory bird. So it, uh, it mates, it makes babies up in uh, lower Canada, up in the Midwest, and the, really the greater Western states. Um, but they're both here, the, the two pelican species um out of eight pelican species worldwide they're they're both here um soon they're they american white pelicans they winter here um and you get opportunities i go out to i live right on the mississippi river and i go out often with my binoculars and sometimes i get a chance of brown and white pelicans sitting side by side and it's a noticeable difference i mean brown pelicans are very that kind of dirty brown color compared to those those stark white pelicans but, but uh, could they mate? No, no, no. I mean, completely different species. No. Right. The um, seeing brown pelicans, I, I was on a, the Caribbean one time and the place where I was staying was right on the water's edge. And there was just a big colony of brown pelicans. And it was so much fun to sit on the porch and just yeah. watch them diving. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's such a, such a beautiful sight to see that. Um, yeah. You know, they're flying over, kind of gliding so innocently, and all of a sudden they go in for the kill. Uh-huh. What a beautiful sight. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I mean, it's one of my favorite. I became a big birder over the past couple of years and watching brown pelicans feed is still one of my favorite things. I think the best place to do it locally is just, it's, it's tougher, like in the New Orleans area, certainly, uh, and along the Louisiana coast. If you go to the beaches of Mississippi, you could see it really well. And the pelicans will, will at dusk, in the morning they'll fly in like a, a line like rockets you know and they mm -hmm. and they flap their wings one after another just like the the new york rockets and then they all they'll they'll swoop upwards and they'll all start to dive like you know dive bombers like one after another um and it's i mean it's a it's a really magical thing to witness i tell you reading your book i saw you use the line where you're talking about the pelicans flying in the line and their waves flapping yeah like rockets yeah. and i had to stop at that i thought that Wow, what a line right there! Oh, thank I mean, you. I mean, that just winded me. I thought that was just a great line. Oh, thank uh, you. So the um, I also learned. Okay, so what we have here or in Louisiana is what they call the the eastern brown pelican. Yeah, and it's found mostly along with the Atlantic coast and the yeah. Gulf coast. Right now, there are brown pelicans in California. Mm -hmm. Are they pretty much the same species or? Uh, yeah, same species. Those, yeah, it is the same species, and um, these birds can um, can certainly mate. Um, what differentiates the, um, and we even perhaps have um, evidence of uh, Gulf Coast and Atlantic Coast pelicans and Western pelicans kind of kind of crossing boundaries, let's say, and flying over Mexico. Um, Although they've never been like tracked with, you know, by scientists, but we do see, uh, especially California pelicans show up in the Gulf, and we know they're California pelicans because they have this bright orange underpout. So if you see something like bright red orange, um, likely a California uh, varietal of the um, of the brown pelican species. Well, that's a pelican that likes to fly, huh? I mean, going from California to the uh, down here, or just. Yeah, I mean, it's it's because there's no, you know, I, I, I scoured the scientific literature on the brown pelican, although my book's not a scientific book. Uh, and I talked to and hung out, got to go out on uh, research trips with a bunch of brown pelican scientists and asked them, how did how did they get over here? I mean, birds, even birds that do not say migrate great distances and the brown pelican usually stays close to home where it was born. Uh, it will migrate for food. It will move as the fish move. Um, but beyond that, like, you know, there's there's all types of evidence of birds just getting off track, birds going to, you know, where they're not supposed to quote unquote be. Um, even birds that don't migrate great distances can end up in, in places that, uh, you know, at least to humans or bird watching humans, you know, might be, by, be new and exciting, but no doubt birds have continued to go places that we don't think they're supposed to be uh, for, you know, for as long as these species have existed. Now, there's one quirk about the pelican, which mm -hmm. once people realize, it just opens the door for a whole different understanding, at least philosophically and spiritually about the bird. Like people see the state logo and they see these three chicks at its breast. And so they assume that there's kind of a breastfeeding thing going on or something. Yeah, That's not it, huh? I mean, they're going for blood. Yeah, yeah. So if you so so the the flag was redesigned officially a few years ago, and um, uh, it was standardized, I should say. And it you know it it was always supposed to carry the design of uh, uh, three drops of blood uh, falling into the mouths of three pelican 
uh, chicks. Um, and, um, you know, they, we, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, because these flag, the, the, the history of the Louisiana state flag is really interesting, but that, that, that design was never codified. So there's instances of, say, a dozen chicks uh, in a nest that have flown over the Capitol uh, and uh, birds that certainly don't look like pelicans and look more like, say, uh, uh, vultures feeding the chicks. Uh, now we have this more codified and standardized design. But I mean, you know, it goes back to like myth. It goes back to, to you know, Christian myth and beyond of uh, the, the mother pelican uh, uh, sacrificing uh, her own life and her own life blood uh, for her chicks. Um, and, and it goes back to the, to, to the way people used to watch, perceive, observe uh, the feeding habits of pelicans. And um, pelicans, like a lot of birds, it's, it's not really unique to them, but they, uh, the way they feed their nestlings um, is they, uh, they, you know, they, they vomit, right? Uh, fish into the mouths of their baby birds. And, um, after the baby birds eat, uh, when they're sated, when they're fully fed, they go into convulsions. They're just like these, just these joyful convulsions where they roll around on their backs until they uh, literally like pass out from being so excited, so full of energy from just being fed. And when when people say millennia ago would watch this happen, they thought the the mother bird uh, was uh, was killing her chicks, right? And uh, that's how they perceived it. And uh, so they created this myth, and um, you know it 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 carries across cultures. Uh, there's there's uh, eight, eight pelican species that are found in every corner of the globe uh, that feed in similar ways. And you know it became a it became a, a Christian symbol. It became a Catholic symbol. The pelican can be found in uh, churches all over New Orleans, all over New uh, Louisiana, all over the world. Um, as a symbol of Christ, as a symbol of a uh, an animal, a creature. Uh, sacrificing its own body for its for its flock. And when you see a pelican with its wings spread out, it does make one think of the cross of the. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. The, okay, but yeah, the fact absolutely. about the blood about the pelicans breaking into the breasts for blood—that is, in fact, what's happening, isn't it? Well, no, no. I mean, no birds. No, the bird, the pelican does not pierce its own breast. Um, what? birds sometimes do and what the pelican sometimes does has to do in order to disgorge food that's lodged say in its pouch in its throat in order to feed its babies it kind of uh, uh beats its its beak against its breast which looks perhaps like a piercing or looks like a piercing that's how it was interpreted um and then it would vomit the fish i hope this isn't too disgusting for listeners um yeah onto its baby birds and uh that perhaps you know was interpreted uh, as the way we see it on the flag design also um a lot of birds including the brown pelican will sometimes uh, uh during the hatching cycle develop and you'll see uh it's really noticeable on a lot of local a uh, gull species, a uh, seagull species that we have here in Louisiana. But during the feeding cycle, when they become parents, uh, they'll develop a like a, a blood red spot on its beak. Um, it, and it looks like blood. I mean, it is bright, bright orange red. And um, uh, scientists believe this is for the baby chicks to uh, 
you kind of it's like a target and the baby chicks will peck at this spot on the parent's beak in order to incite encourage the parent to you know it's feeding time so but in the state symbol where they have those drops of blood mm -hmm. so in fact there's really not drops of blood oh on on like on actual birds yeah no no that it's it's purely christian symbolism that it comes from and then it was transfer it was it was in catholic churches uh, and then the state flag adopted it. Okay. But in fact, what the mother is doing is trying to get to the food that it can regurgitate. Yes. To the birds. Yes. And the food is quite often fish, isn't it? Like, especially in Louisiana, like uh, Menhaden and other fish are. Yeah. Yep. Brown pelicans eat uh, Menhaden most commonly, uh, Gulf pelicans do. Um, they are, uh, Menhaden, also called pogi, are uh, non-food fish. Uh, you know, there, there is an industry for them in the Gulf, uh, for cat food, I believe, um, for uh, perhaps for, for, for uh, fish oil vitamins, but we don't, we don't, you know, humans don't eat Menhaden. Uh, pelicans will also eat things like sardines, anchovies, a little bigger of fish. Um, but not here. No, not here, right? Not in the Gulf, but in other places. And um, but you know, nothing larger than that mm -hmm. um, is what they go after. Yeah, I think they use the for cosmetics too. At the Menhaden, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's a super oily fish. Okay. Yeah, but but because of that, though, I mean, it's um, that inspired, and you point out in your book a lot of like early literature and stories about pelicans. And uh, I'm going to ask you the eighth um, fable that you tell uh, that has to do with a, a pelican. Would you mind telling about that? Oh yeah. You know, I got to remind myself. Can I look it up real quick? Yeah, I found it right here. So it's, it's the pelican and the, uh, and the ostrich, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. I want to, I want to quote it. Uh... Okay, okay, so so this is one of Aesop's fables involves uh, the pelican uh, and the ostrich. And um, uh, uh, they meet and they're talking, the, the two birds. And Aesop's pelican tells the ostrich uh, that, that pain is a pleasure. And she explains, the pelican explains, the most exquisite that nature has indulges us is pleasure. Uh, and in which pain itself is swallowed up and lost and only serves to heighten the enjoyment. And I think, you know, I, and maybe I didn't do a great job explaining this, but, um, you know, for people have always, you know, as long as people have kind of attached um, stories and myths to birds, um, they've seen the pelican as a suffering animal, right? And we don't always attach that theme to all animals, that certainly some, right? Whereas the ostrich goes and hides its eggs, right? The pelican is kind of right there, right? The the pelican <laughs> suffers for its young and suffers for its family, and we've always seen the pelican as this this long suffering bird. And the, and the story I tell uh, over the the five chapters of this book, it's a brief book, is is the ways that uh, humanity has caused suffering in you know among this species, the brown pelican, and how we've almost caused its near extinction uh several times over the past century and a half okay speaking of extinction let's, let's talk about that um when you tell the story 
I guess it would be like in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. And you tell about the stuff. I think the guy's name is Chapman. Chapman, Frank Chapman. Yeah. And you kind of fool the reader, okay? Because he's in Manhattan and he's spotting all of these birds. Right. And he's riding down. And I'm thinking, how's this guy seeing all these birds in, in Manhattan? Right. It turns out they're on the hats of women. Mm -hmm. uh, tell about that. That was a big industry uh, for a while. Yeah, yeah. So Frank Chapman was like, you know, he, 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 uh, he, um, uh, the research he was doing, the writing he was doing, uh, beginning in the 1880s, the late 1880s and the 1890s, led to the Audubon societies that we know today. And in February of 18, 1886, he goes for a walk in New York City to count birds. And um, I'm a birder and I go count birds almost every day. Um, but the birds he was counting was a little bit different. He was counting dead birds, the birds that he saw um, that he recognized on women's hats. And so he, what he saw that day were uh, 40 species, 173 birds. Uh, these would be plumes. These would be entire birds like hummingbirds pinned onto a, a lady's hat. Uh, it would be he counted uh, heads of an owl. Uh, he, 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 uh, but plumes certainly, feathers were certainly the most popular. Um, and uh, he, you know, he he wrote stories and uh, articles about this, and it led to this this great outcry uh, among the the first kind of wave of uh, American preservationists and environmentalists. And um, you know what what happened was the beginning of the Audubon Society and the Aud the original Audubon Society. You know, really, you know, targeted. Uh, milliners, so women hat makers, and also uh, women who wore birds, dead birds, and and feathers in their in their on top of their heads, and um, it it led to the vitaliz the kind of the revitalization of several species, most notably the the snowy egret, and the snowy egret, which um, Louisiana listeners might recognize, is a is a is a is a white is a white bird. It's, it's smaller than the great egret. It's plentiful around Louisiana today. And it has these beautiful feathery plumed uh, plumes that uh, just kind of like stick out everywhere, it seems. And um, in the 1890s, this bird was at the brink of extinction and only exists today, the snowy egret, because uh, the, the McElhaney's um, basically just created a, a, a refuge for snowy egrets and other birds uh, down uh, near New Iberia, Louisiana. And, uh, every island? Every island, right. And so, um, uh, and so this, the snowy egret and other birds uh, in Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast and Florida were, were started doing better as we went into the 20th century. Unfortunately, the wearing of feathers in your hat did not go away. And women switched in the 20th, early 20th century from wearing very bright, showy, or those those beautiful white feathers from like the snowy egret or the roseate spoonbill, one of my favorite birds, to more kind of drab feathers. Uh, and, and the bird that serviced hats uh, in the early 19th century, early 20th century, I should say, was uh, the brown pelican. The brown pelican was plentiful in Florida where a lot of plume hunters uh, you know, did their, did, applied their trade. Um, it was easy to take down. Um, and it was, you know, it was a big bird with lots of feathers to fill lots of hats. And so the brown pelican was killed by the tens of thousands in Florida 
in the early 20th century, leading to President Roosevelt, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, creating the first uh, National Wildlife Reserve at Pelican Island off uh, the Atlantic coast of Florida, uh, which uh, remains um, a, uh, a bird sanctuary and was one of the great homes uh, for uh, breeding grounds for brown pelicans uh, then and to some extent today. Um, Audubon, you know, of course, has like kept its mission from uh, saving birds from plume hunters and traders to, you know, just saving birds, uh, certainly uh, nationwide and throughout North America, but really throughout the world, uh, its, its mission continues. Well, as you point out, even Audubon, who did a lot to maintain respect and interest in birds through his paintings, but to be able to paint them, <laughs> he yeah. had to kill them. Yeah, yeah the mean, only the, the only photography. Yeah, the only way Audubon was able to paint those birds so well was uh, by shooting them out of the sky, shooting them out of trees. Um, they called this the era of shotgun ornithology, and Audubon wasn't the only one. So, like the first ornithologists in the 1800s were doing the same thing um, in order to collect samples for whatever museum or university they worked with. Uh, they would kill birds. They would shotgun birds, and um, Audubon, of course. Also, Audubon, the society, I should say, also pushed back uh, against this. Um, you know, it was it was it, it was touch and go for several decades because the founders, the uh, the the, or I guess the um, uh, the people in charge of some of the Audubon societies, like Chapman and uh, another man named George Bur George Bird Grinnell, um, were shotgun ornithologists themselves. His um, middle name actually was Bird. Was bird. It's a great middle name, um, but they were they were bird. They considered themselves bird lovers and conservationists at the same time. In order to study birds, identify birds, uh, this is before the era of of binoculars uh, or what they call looking glasses. Uh, they 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 took birds out of the sky. They made birds come to them with uh, with shotgun pellets. We're talking with Ryan Fortell. By the way, that's spelled R I E N. Uh, not the conventional spelling, has a book, a wonderful book called Brown Pelican. Uh, it's published by LSU Press, and it's out at all the bookstores and they, anywhere where you'd find good books. I really recommend it. It's really, um, uh, really a, a good read. The uh, You're talking about Pelican Island in Florida where the, uh, where the, where the pelicans gathered. Mm -hmm. The ones in Louisiana, they were also on the offshore islands. Any particular islands? Where brown pelicans, yeah, yeah, congregate in Louisiana, sure. So, uh, so the most uh, notable islands today that are pelican breeding grounds and sanctuaries are Raccoon Island, which is off of Terrebonne Parish. This is southwest Louisiana. Uh, Raccoon Island, uh, some Louisianians might recognize as uh, a remnant of Isle Dernier or Last Island, which was decimated by uh, one of the earliest storms in memory before we had named storms. Uh, a, a storm destroyed this island, uh, kind of cut it up in a little bits, and Raccoon Island uh, has, has been a, a sanctuary for some time. Another is Queen Bess Island, which is off of Grand Isle. It's a little, little island. And it, it, it uh, has been throughout its history, uh, a pelican, a brown pelican uh, hotspot of importance. And Queen Bess Island doesn't it have its own uh, species of, of oyster. So yeah, there's, there's uh, oyster farmers 
who are uh, headquartered on Grand Isle that market some of their oysters as as Queen Bess um, because the oyster reefs that they maintain uh, and that they farm from are just off the the shores of the island. You know, when you're talking, just a, a quick aside, when um talking about these islands, there's an island off the Mississippi coast called Cat Island. Yep. And the story behind that, I mean, you, you may have heard supposedly Quinn B. Inville and his people when they were going along the way and they stopped at this island. Um, they saw raccoons, but they'd never seen raccoons before. They didn't know what that was. <laughs> right. I mean, from France. And so they thought it was the kind of cat. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so they call it cat. And so I guess there were raccoons all across um, with this. All right. Yeah. There is a wonderful story. I mean, one of the great conservation stories about what happened, I think it was the 1950s, mm-hmm. when all of a sudden, not just pelicans, but pelicans, um, not especially, were dying. And he had this whole ripple effect. Fish were dying. And there was just, um, and it was um, due to pesticides. Mm-hmm. And the whole pelican population in Louisiana was just about depleted. And the story about that and what happened and how they dealt with it, would you mind just kind of telling about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a story I was very vaguely familiar with. And I see this story as really the heart of the book. Uh, and, it, and it traces the, 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 the life of the brown pelican in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, in Louisiana. And it's a story that certainly resonates today. Um, but the, the brown pelican disappeared entirely from the state. Uh, meaning that no brown pelicans were born uh, in the state. Scientists call this extirpated or locally extinct, extinct on a local level, uh, between the years of 1962 and 1972. So for a whole decade, the pelican state was pelicanless. Um, and and uh, no pelicans in Louisiana uh, solely because of pesticides. Um, the toxicity of uh, runoff from the Mississippi River, of... Um, uh, insecticides like uh, DDT, the most famous, also Indrin, um, which were promoted in the 1950s and 40s and 50s after World War II as insect bombs. They could, you know, kill uh, fire ants. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the Gulf of Mexico, they, the, these poisons ran uh, down the Mississippi River Basin, um, uh, made the Gulf of Mexico uh, a toxic place for uh, uh, seabirds, certainly, that ate fish life. And the way that DDT uh, works is, you know, it, it works its way up the, the food chain. And as it works its way up the food chain, it becomes uh, more harmful or more toxic to animals at the top of the food chain. And brown pelican is, a, is, is classified as a super predator. Uh, it doesn't have uh, many, many uh, enemies besides a, a stray raccoon that might end up on an island and certainly uh, humankind, but um, brown pelicans were were totally decimated in the state. Um, DDT affected the species by um, it would soften the uh, shell of the eggs, and brown pelicans uh, incubate their nest by literally uh, standing their webbed feet, their webbed toes, on top of uh, their clutch of eggs, which is normally. Uh, uh, two to three eggs uh, within a birthing cycle. Uh, and when brown pelicans stood on top of these now softened eggs due to these pesticides, they'd crush them. And so we had no, no baby pelicans for an entire generation. Um, 
And uh, by the by the late 1960s, um, it was known why this was occurring. Uh, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries uh, decided they needed to do something about this in 1968. Uh, they had a meeting here in New Orleans and um, they, uh, unfortunately, uh, Louisiana didn't have any ornithologists or bird scientists on staff at the time. Uh, California, which was experiencing the same pop, uh, problem within their brown pelican population did. So uh, with no bird scientists on staff, the job fell to two alligator scientists, uh, Ted Joannan and Larry McNeese. And uh, they came up with this crazy plan uh, that worked. In, and the in, same issue was being faced with alligators too, that, that yeah. they were becoming extinct also. Yeah, from overhunting and other things, yeah. right. So they knew, so right, that's why they were chosen, right? So yeah. they, they were helping the alligator uh, you know, lead an alligator renaissance uh, in Louisiana. And so they, it, it was thought that they could do the same with the brown pelican. Uh, and what they did to uh, bring pelicans back to the state was, well, they, they drove to Florida and they literally brought brown pelicans back to the state. They, they kidnapped or birdnapped uh, young birds, birds that were not fledged yet or hadn't left their nest. Now, did they get a, approval from people from Florida? They just wouldn't took they them. They must. They must have. Yeah. So they got approval. There, there were there were scientists in every kind of okay. state on this. Uh, they they took a bunch of birds, drove as fast as they could back to the Rockefeller Wildlife uh, Refuge. Uh, in Southwest Louisiana and raised birds. And they raised them on a, a slurry of cat food uh, when the birds were big enough to feed themselves or hopefully uh, fledge, uh, leave the nest and not require the feeding by parents or humans. Uh, they brought them to Raccoon Island and also Queen Bass Island. There were failures for several years uh, and then it finally worked. And by 1972, we had uh, baby baby birds, baby brown pelicans being born in the pelican state once again. And the population has grown from there. Yeah, population is grown from there. We have a healthy brown pelican population now in the state. Um, the brown pelican was an endangered species. So it was on the federal uh, wildlife endangered species list uh, from the 1960s up until uh, just before the BP oil spill. So it was so taken in 2009. If someone sees they're in Louisiana and they see a brown pelican fly by, yep. the probability is that their great, 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 great grandpa was from Florida. Was from Florida. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. From the Atlantic coast of Florida. Right. Um, any estimate what the size of the pelican population is now in Louisiana? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's upwards. So, I've heard, I've read, so we're talking maybe 75,000 um is is uh, an estimate um so I, I had the opportunity to um from zero in 1972 yeah 75,000 yeah that's a that's an estimate I've heard so you know and we've also come you know not only to having a, a a bounty of brown pelicans in the state but from having no brown pelican scientists to having several brown pelican scientists or at least a a brown pelican uh, or a, a graduate student, I should say, working on brown pelican studies. Um, ULL, or the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, in my hometown of Lafayette, um, has had a series of graduate students working on the brown pelican. And I was able to go out um, with, with uh, three different, uh, uh, or at least interview, I should say, three different brown pelican scientists 
and go out on a boat and to islands with two of those uh, and to witness the research. And it's really fascinating stuff. They're, they're, they're doing nest counts for sure, uh, but they're also interested in, 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 mi in migratory and feeding habits. Um, the most interesting research and, and I think the most fulfilling research for uh, Louisianians is, um, is how all of the money that we are pumping into restoring these barrier islands, uh, what they mean for bird life on the islands. So due to the BP oil spill, Louisiana was left with a giant pot of money uh, for, among other things, uh, wildlife uh, restoration and bird life restoration. Uh, on barrier islands and other parts of Louisiana. And so uh, queen bass and raccoon, we have spent millions and other islands like the Chandelier Islands. Uh, we have spent uh, millions of dollars uh, restoring these islands, uh, building better breakwaters to um, protect them from hurricanes, um, adding uh, um, uh, mangrove trees, so planting uh, you know, green life on these islands where pelicans can nest and build nests. Um, and, and, and the scientists today are really interested in, in what the restoration and the upkeep of these islands mean to birds uh, going forward. So it's really fascinating stuff that's being done down in Lafayette. Do you have any idea about how many alligators there are now in Louisiana? I have no clue. No, I don't. I don't know. There's a lot. I see them everywhere. Well, I'm hesitant to say it. Somebody yeah. told me two million. It could be. What? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's a good idea to have 2 million alligators and only 75,000 pelicans. I thought the pelican would be a little bit worried there. Yeah. Right. Uh, anyway, it's an incredible story, though. I mean, it's a great, I mean, the good side of mankind and conservation and, and, uh, and what can be done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can, I can talk, should I talk about like the, 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 the threats as I see it now to the brown pelican? Yeah, well, actually, to kind of get into that, yeah, yeah, I want you to tell that story, which you also tell when you um, went with these people, this pelicanologist, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. And when you came back and you all were docking, and somebody pointed out that there was a pelican nearby, they said that he's dying, and, yeah, uh, and 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 what happened from there, right? So, uh, so you might remember the this would have been the winter of um, 20. 21 uh the i guess the i think of it as the the covid winter uh and i also think of mardi gras that day it was it it dropped to below freezing i think in in new orleans on mardi gras day um but that winter i was able to uh go out on a boat just two or three days after that mardi gras so in 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 february i guess it was and um when uh we have freezes in louisiana and along the gulf coast um, the fish go deeper. They go deeper into the Gulf. They go deeper into the waters. Uh, and this means that birds that rely on these fish, like Menhaden, like brown pelicans do, um, they have to go farther to eat for these fish. And, um, you know, we, we did experience in 2021, like a, a pretty sizable pelican die off, uh, from, uh, from, from that freeze. Uh, you know, this was nothing that, you know, is, is going to, to, you know, decimate the brown pelican population going forward. But it, it certainly was a, uh, it was a concerning couple months. And uh, when we were on the, the island on that kind of 
research trip, uh, we saw a lot of, of dead brown pelicans and we did see one at the dock um, uh, when we returned from the trip, uh, a pelican that was uh, evidently starving and uh, it was kind of curled up into itself uh, on the boat ramp. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, the pelican scientist I was with who had to continue her research trip and go right back on the water for another day told me to grab the pelican and uh, drive as fast as I could to the Audubon Zoo where they uh, had a, um, uh, a wildlife, uh, you can drop off wild animals. I'm not sure that program still exists. That's up in the air, I believe. Uh, but, uh, and that's what I did. I, I grabbed the pelican. I marveled at how soft this bird felt uh, in my hands. And we put it into a box and uh, I drove it. Uh, all the way to New Orleans. It was about a three-hour drive from where where I was down on the Louisiana coast, and uh, um, got that got that bird into the hands of uh, in, of doctors. Okay, and there's no happy ending here, though. Uh, no, that that pelican did not survive. It was. Yeah. Uh, but at least it was good to know that the resources were there. That there was, first of all, like there was there was people like yourselves who gave a damn about this. All this. Okay. In that there was a way to deal with it, and it could have been different. Yeah, and there there are wildlife uh, rehabilitators uh, all over uh, the country, certainly all over Louisiana. You can find these people by googling them. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of say, uh, you know, people will use or have to use uh, certainly bird rehabilitators uh, because of bird strikes. So bird strikes is something. Uh, that has always been common and seems to be becoming more and more common, I guess, maybe just because we can take pictures of this happening with our cell phones. But birds do uh, will strike residential and business windows. And um, if they don't um, die from that, they will, you know, be more than dazed, right? So they're, they're, they're really hurt and often have to be... So why do they do that? They just kind of like go and crash into windows? Yeah, they crash into windows because, it, I mean, windows are, are clear and it looks like a, you know, it looks uh, like sky. It looks like a passageway, perhaps, between buildings. Um, I mean, the best thing you can do is um, they sell these. You can buy them in stores. You can buy them on Amazon. You can buy them all over online. But they're these kind of like translucent decals that that don't bother us too much aesthetically or, you know, decoration wise. Uh, and But they certainly pop out to birds and make windows look like. Uh, more solid uh, uh, things that a bird does not want to. Because uh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt with, with my own anecdote here. We had that at our house. Yeah. For about a two or three week period, yeah. uh, there was this bird every morning. It wasn't yeah, a yeah. pelican. I don't know what it was, but it was a pelican. It was a bird that would come and it's uh, it would turn in such a way that his feet went inside the window and just kind of like knock into the, the mm -hmm. window for a while. Mm -hmm. And it would leave, and then it would come back, and then you know, all of a sudden, it didn't come back anymore. Yeah, and we're never quite sure what that meant, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, birds birds seem to have these these kind of like long generational flyways and passages, and um, when we, you know, change the landscape, right, and the airscape that birds fly through. Um, somehow these these generational flyways are you know we we interrupt them right and 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 uh birds aren't going to smack into the side of your brick house but they they 
often will fly into a window and you'll often see birds fly into the same window uh, on a house, say. So there's something about that that passage, if it's an alley between homes and a window there, or if it's, uh, 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 you know, a, a, a new house goes up uh, and it's, you know, a, a window that that stands where a flyway once was. Um, but but something about birds are uh, they, they there's a habit there, and um, you'll you'll see them constantly kind of run into the, the same thing. exact spot on the same yeah. exact window, except yeah. the house is over hundred years old, so it's not like yeah no that's what you remember. Okay, you'd wanted to mention about what the uh, some of the problems of the future that they're facing are. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think what's really interesting today are these are of course the. Um, uh, the barrier islands of Louisiana, where pelicans uh, 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 are born, where they grow up, where they go back to feed often, um, uh, places like Queen Bass and Raccoon. And you, these islands look, to my eyes, and according to pelican scientists and uh, people who have rehabilitated these islands, they look great today. Um, they're lush. Uh, the, they're not uh, eroding. Um, but eventually that pot of money uh, that the BP oil spill unfortunately bestowed upon us will disappear. At the same time, uh, seawaters across the globe are rising and the Gulf of Mexico is rising. And uh, eventually these islands will be overtaken. And so the, the kind of the questions I end the, end the book with are, are, are what, what does the life of the brown pelican look like going forward? Um, the brown pelican won't go extinct because of uh, rises in, in sea levels, uh, but it will likely have to find new homes uh, as decades pass and islands like Queen Bess and Raccoon perhaps become uh, inundated with waters and uh, sink below the gulf. Um, uh, pelicans certainly have lost habitats in the gulf. There's a lot less islands, as I think most of your listeners know, along the Louisiana coast. Uh, and with uh, rising sea level, uh, with it seems a preponderance of, of uh, more hurricanes and fiercer hurricanes, certainly um, something's going to happen to these islands. So it's a matter of, of what we do to restore them, to keep the islands that are remaining um, and to keep those bird habitats healthy. And, you know, these islands also keep us, you know, they're, they're buffers from winds and storms and they keep us healthy and you know, they keep, um, you know, hopefully our, our, our homes uh, more stable. Well, at least I'm encouraged to know or to get a sense of the kind of people who are concerned about this and who are out there working and that, and that there are books like yours that can keep people aware. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe that's good for the long run. Ryan, this has really been fascinating. Thank you very much. What's your yeah. next book? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, there's so many things I want to write about. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a, a, another kind of coastal Louisiana project. Uh, I'll let you know about it as as, uh, as as soon as I kind of nail that down. Okay. I want to talk to you about the, the literary heritage thing and maybe the barbecue thing yeah. someday too. This has been very good. So Anytime. Okay. And so uh, the book is called Brown Pelican by Ryan, R-I-E-N, um, Fortell. Published by LSU Press, and is that is that all the bookstores now? Uh, every bookstore, everywhere online, anywhere you like to buy books. Okay, and it's um, uh, you know, it's like it's like eighty eight pages, and so it's uh, 
Yeah. It's a quick read, but man, there's a lot within those 88 pages. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, yeah. And so there's a lot to, there's a lot to think about, uh, including the Brown Pelicans looking like the Rockettes. Okay. That's great. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.